Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, at FAIR, we say you can change the channel all you want, but you can't turn on what isn't there. The loss of an information source, a particular place for debate, for conversation on issues relevant to you, well, that loss is incalculable but very real. We talked about that and why we can still be hopeful with Craig Aaron of the group Free Press. Also on the show, fashion is always a huge media story, but what goes into it is not. The fashion industry is a prime driver of structured exploitation. Whether we're talking about blocked fire exits or a peace rate system that steals workers' wages systematically. The Garment Worker Protection Act, passed in California late last year, aims to address some of those harms. In light of that undercovered victory, we're going to remind ourselves of one of the spurs for it. Barbara Briggs, then Associate Director of the Institute for Global Labor and Human Rights, spoke with Counterspin in 2015 about the 2013 collapse at Rana Plaza, which brought murder charges against Bangladeshi factory owners and government officials, but, we can say now, somehow didn't convince corporate media to keep a critical eye trained on the human costs of fast fashion. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you by the Media Watch Group Fair. The board of Lee Enterprises, which owns some 90 newspapers in the U.S., including the Buffalo News and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, rejected what the Washington Post called an unsolicited offer to purchase the company from hedge fund Alden Global Capital. Many listeners will know Alden as the rapacious group that buys up newspapers and then lays off journalists in droves. The Lee Board's statement says the Alden buy, quote, is not in the best interests of the company and its shareholders, close quote. They might have noted that it's also, some would say primarily, not in the interest of communities who rely on newspapers to tell them what's going on and why it matters. More than one in five local papers in the U.S. have closed in just the last 15 years or so, And yes, people are moving away from print as a form, but who is filling the void of regular, relevant, local reporting, informing people at the level at which most people engage? Activists are tired of lamenting rampant consolidation and the exclusion of new and diverse voices in news media. They're working around the country on projects that both demand accountability from existing institutions and envision new systems, new processes, new ways of doing journalism that more accurately reflect and support communities. We're joined now by Craig Aaron, co-CEO with Jessica Gonzalez of the group Free Press. He joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome back to Counterspin, Craig Aaron. Thanks for having me back. 
Well, I get what Lee's board is saying. Uh, They think their assets were being undervalued. But Alden's problem is not that they don't look out for shareholders. But we have seen, although you might not read about it in the local paper, we have seen the impact of their and other groups buying up and stripping down papers around the country, haven't we? Uh, We certainly have, you know, the fact that uh, these hedge fund vultures like Alden, when they go into a community, even a growing and vibrant community, you know, which is what many of these papers are, places that are growing in population with new businesses and lots of things happening when someone like Alden comes to town, they are there really just to squeeze and cut back on the newsroom and try to essentially bleed these properties dry of their assets. They're there to sell off the buildings and sell off the equipment and put out very often the bare minimum kind of daily news product to just continue until they can take as much money out of it as possible. Now, this is a strange situation because it's not like Lee is this amazing public steward that we can say like, What an incredible company. And I want to be clear, there are good journalists in all these newsrooms trying to survive, trying to cover stories, trying to do a good job. But we're sort of left here rooting for the really big and somewhat mediocre newspaper chain Mm -hmm. to fight off the hedge fund vultures and hope that somehow that's going to produce better local news. And, you know, kind of leaves me asking, like, there really just must be a better way and a better system where our choices aren't just one big chain with somewhat of a commitment to local journalism versus, you know, uh, terrible, greedy hedge funds that we know are going to come and destroy what's left of local journalism. Those really shouldn't be our only choices. Absolutely. Well, we're coming into a new year. We're trying to look forward while being informed by our understanding of what is and what has been. And so I wanted to ask you to talk about some of the projects Free Press has been working on and collaborating on that are about the future, that are about making change in this so important sphere of local media, including newspapers. What are folks doing around the country and and why is it hopeful? Well, I think there is reason, despite everything I just said, to be hopeful. And, you know, that starts with those hardworking journalists in newsrooms fighting against these corporate owners, getting organized, asking their institutions to reckon with their histories. That's happening in newsrooms all over the country. And we are seeing an uptick in organized uh, journalism, you know, people forming unions in their newsroom. They're working with community to hold leadership accountable. I think we've seen that in a lot of communities from Los Angeles to Philadelphia and on and on. That's a good sign working within the existing system. But probably why I'm more optimistic is I see sprouting up all over the country innovative journalism happening in small corners, in neighborhoods, in people starting new projects actually built with serving community in mind. In most cases, non-commercial or non-profit institutions really devoted to rethinking how we do local news. I think of City Bureau in Chicago or Outlier Media in Detroit. Some things happening inside public media. You know, people who are really saying the part of the problem with the system we have right now is if it's, it's starting from a place of recognizing that for all the good journalism is capable of doing, 
the good old days for journalism just weren't that good for so many people and that we're going to need to build new institutions doing journalism in different ways, thinking about community service, thinking about the information that communities actually need, and thinking about a model that starts with community service and not just profit. So I see examples all over the country of uh, new and interesting people starting up. The challenge is, can they actually sustain that work? And these are where I think the world's kind of come together, where we have to begin to ask ourselves, what are the structures and policies we need to actually provide quality local news? And do we build it on the system we've already always had? How do we support these new and innovative projects? And of course, the age old question, where is the money going to come from? Mm -hmm. And these are the big questions we have because the commercial system that we've had for so long isn't providing the local news we need. We're not seeing newsrooms get stronger. We're not seeing them able to do more. And we need to start thinking about what the future of journalism is going to look like. I increasingly believe the only choice we're going to have is to really invest in a non-commercial system, a diverse local system. And that's going to take new structures and policies to get us there. We're closer to the beginning of that fight than I would like to be. But I think we have seen, whether it's in Washington, D.C., whether it's in the states, a new kind of conversation happening about what the public responsibility really is and that we need new investments in order to provide that kind of local news. So, for example, a couple of years ago, we worked to pass a bill in the state of New Jersey to create a civic information consortium using public money to support innovative local journalism projects this year. The first checks from that new fund were handed out. Uh, It was, you know, a million dollars, so not enough to solve the problem of local journalism, but a great experiment showing that public dollars can go to support innovative projects actually designed to serve local needs, to serve diverse communities and reach communities that have never been served by the traditional media. That's just one promising example Uh, But it's the kind of example that I think suggests we can do things differently and we can expand the narrow definition of what's possible that's dominated these questions over how are we going to provide local journalism? What's the business model? Well, we need to be asking different questions, not just what's going to be most profitable, but what do we actually need for communities to thrive? And I see new energy and ideas in that space, which makes me optimistic at a time of a lot of pessimism when it comes to the state of journalism. Well, let me just ask you, finally, in a piece I read on Neiman Labs, Free Press's Senior Director of Journalism Policy, Mike Rispoli, wrote that over the past few years, more lawmakers have begun to get serious about the collapse of the local news market and the threats it poses to civic participation and community health. So, Is something happening at a legislative level? Because we also know that the Aldens and the big media corporations have a lot of sway in policymaking. So I see statements of concern from legislators, but what's happening at that level? Well, I can certainly say as someone who spends a lot of time on Capitol Hill talking about the future of journalism, that I have had more conversations and more encouraging conversations with legislators in the last two years and in response to the pandemic and the related economic crisis than at any time, you know, in the last 20 years. So I think that is a positive sign that legislators are beginning to take this seriously. Uh, We have seen legislation start to move, for example, 
the Local Journalism Sustainability Act, which is a bill that would create tax credits for hiring newsroom workers. In and of itself, that's a good thing. Uh, We want to see more reporters on the beat and in newsrooms. The challenge with a bill like this is that while it would help a lot of newsrooms that really need it, it would also hand a lot of money over to these same hedge funds who have been destroying local newsrooms. It would hand a lot of money over to local broadcasters who themselves are getting rich off the broken campaign finance system. So the reality, the political reality is that to get a good thing, some tax credits for journalism jobs, you have to let in the big guys to have the political clout to pass something. And that's kind of the dilemma facing those of us trying to make good journalism policy in Washington. Local Journalism Sustainability Act might happen. It's in the Build Back Better bill. If that happens, uh, you could see support for journalists. But even that support would really be a bridge. It would would give us another couple years to figure out what is the long-term change we need. And we think that's where we need to push this conversation. And we need to figure out in that time who's going to fight for the kind of local journalism we actually need. It's going to have to be a broader coalition. It's going to have to represent the diverse communities that populate this country. If we make policy and the only folks that are in the room, or most of them, represent the hedge funds and represent the broadcasters, we're going to get policies that are deeply flawed and designed to hold up the existing system that's not serving us. But if we begin to build a broader coalition, and we're starting that organizing work through the organizing of a media power collective bringing together these innovators and folks with big ideas over the future of journalism to try to say, we can have something different. We can figure out how to support it. We can figure out what the non-commercial future of journalism is going to be, and then actually go to legislators with new plans, bigger ideas, and the kind of political constituency that can actually make them happen so that we aren't having this same conversation in 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. And we can start wrestling both with the history of our media system and how it brought us to this point in history and what real alternatives could look like that actually serve local communities in the ways they need. We've been speaking with Craig Aaron, co-CEO of Free Press. Find their work, including about the Media Power Collaborative, online at freepress.net. Thank you so much, Craig Aaron, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. If the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory had had its appropriate response... There never would have been a Rana Plaza, but it didn't, and there was. More than 1,100 people, mainly women, lost their lives in a factory collapse in Bangladesh, which might sound like a long way away, but they were making clothes that you might have on your back right now. We talked about that with worker rights advocate Barbara Briggs in 2015. Officials in Bangladesh have filed murder charges against some of the people involved in the 2013 collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory that killed more than 1,100 mostly women workers and injured thousands of others under circumstances almost too cruel to fathom. It doesn't require speaking for the deceased to imagine that they would hope not only 
for justice for themselves, but for whatever actions are necessary to prevent such a disaster happening to others. Are we seeing some of those actions? Are real lessons being learned from what's been called the garment industry's deadliest disaster? Joining us now to discuss these issues is Barbara Briggs, Associate Director of the Institute for Global Labor and Human Rights, where I will note I am a board member. Welcome to Counterspin, Barbara Briggs. Good afternoon. Well, we often hear the sweeping term conditions, the conditions in these factories. The charges here reflect different aspects of those conditions. There is the violation of safety rules. Additional floors had been added to a building in a way that wasn't structurally sound. But the Bangladeshi police report calls what happened on April 24th in 2013 a mass killing. And that's because of actions that go beyond having workers in unsafe buildings. Can you remind us of what actually happened on that day? The history of what happened with Rana Plaza uh, and, you know, ending in the tragedy of April 24th really was a crime from beginning to end. I mean, as you said, there was too much sand in the concrete. There was poor quality steel used in the rebar. The building had been built up an extra three floors over its permitted five floors, and it was built as a commercial building, not an industrial building. And the weight of the heavy machinery and generators of the apparel factories on the upper floors was a much heavier load than the building was even designed for. On April 22nd, big visible cracks appeared in the building, and the building was evacuated. An inspector was called in and declared the building dangerous. The bank and the commercial businesses on the first floor of Rana Plaza remained closed. But on April 24th, the workers gathered and they came to the factory, not to go in, but to find out when the repairs would be done, when they could expect to go back to work, and also when they would be paid for the almost month that they had worked. The response of the owners of the five factories in the Rana Plaza building was that they ordered the workers to go back to work immediately and said that if they didn't, they wouldn't be paid for the month. They had shipment deadlines. They had to get the product out. For these workers, if you're not paid for a month's work, you're not able to feed your families. Garment workers in Bangladesh at that point were making as little as 18 cents an hour. $38.65 a month, they really literally live from hand to mouth, and they still do. For the workers who still refuse to go back into the factory, the owner of the building, Sohel Rana, who's also a local strongman, called in thugs with sticks and threatened that they would break the bones of anybody who didn't go into the building immediately. So at 8 a.m., all the workers went in to work. At 8.45, the electricity went out, which is not unusual in Bangladesh, and simultaneously, the five factories, five big generators kicked on. Within minutes, the building began to rock and sway, and it went down with virtually all of the workers inside. The lesson that I take from this, for us, an absolute certainty, is that if the workers in the Rana Plaza building had had a union to represent them, this tragedy would have played out 
very differently. I mean, the workers knew the building was dangerous. There were huge cracks you could see from the outside to the inside. But alone and without the ability to come together, speak as a group, and be represented, they became victims. What happened in subsequent months, first of all, there were dozens of U.S. and Canadian and European companies producing in those factories. Joe Fresh, Walmart, Gap, and virtually every major U.S. apparel company and European apparel company does produce in Bangladesh, somewhere in Bangladesh, because labor is so cheap. I think what's happened, what happened on that day is that the international brands have realized that tragedies like Rana Plaza, which killed over 1,100 workers, you know, fires like the Tazreen factory, which killed 112 behind locked factory gates just a few months before, these kind of accidents are just too great a reputational risk. And the companies do not want their products associated with workers who are burned and who are crushed to death. And so there really have been ongoing systematic efforts and a fair amount of money but an international coordination to see that these factories are inspected and to assure that they're at least basically safe. You know, they're demanding and in some cases financing the installation of fire exits, sprinkler systems, fire extinguishers, and emergency trainings. But I've got to say that other kinds of abuses continue. It sounds as though some, at least, of the transnationals involved have made some pledges and have followed through on those in terms of some infrastructural improvements. But what needs to happen that hasn't happened? The direct contract factories really are beginning to get some of the safety requirements that they're having. I mean, there's training. They're trying not to lock the gates anymore. There are basic sprinkler systems and fire extinguishers and that sort of thing, fire escapes. What we're seeing, though, is that there still are considerable abuses. And we've always known that inside even the best facilities, worker treatment is not always good and the law is not always respected. So in factory after factory after factory, some of them producing, you know, for brands with really good and progressive reputations. We see extraordinarily, extraordinary amounts of forced overtime. We see, you know, women, when they get pregnant, uh, pressured and harassed into quitting so that they don't have to pay their maternity leave. We see workers screamed at and verbally abused. Uh, And really pretty much across the board, we see that the workers still do not have their right to organize, to form an independent union, and to bargain collectively. And, I mean, we know that workers are the best monitors of conditions and the best guarantors of their own safety when they're organized and have an independent voice. So this is a really big flaw, including for the ongoing safety of of these plants. Well, in the changes that have come about, what have been some of the driving factors? It hasn't all been you know, kind of noblesse oblige on the part of the companies. There also is organizing going on on the ground to try to build up the workers' voice, is there not? Yes. 
although the unions are in a real one-down position, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, there are too many of them and they're not unified. However, there are very committed organizations that are trying to help the workers. It's not shop floor organizing. It's labor unions and federations on the street uh, helping the workers learn their rights, Mm -hmm. helping them begin to advocate for themselves and helping them out, you know, going to the labor ministry, making complaints and that kind of thing. Not all is hopeless. And with international pressure, it's possible to push change. And the Institute and our partners in Bangladesh have actually experienced a string of victories in the last year or so. Starting with exposing abusive conditions at the Hamim Group, a factory called Next Collections, producing, actually it was for for the Gap a couple of years ago, we've moved on to several factory groups where we've been able to clean up conditions. Our estimate is that at this point, over 70,000 workers are in a better state now, Mm -hmm. meaning that instead of working until 10 or 11 or till midnight or sometimes until 5 in the morning and working seven days a week, their hours have been cut back and the overtime that they work is voluntary. It's paid correctly. There's been an end to you know, the double sets of books where the workers get pay stubs that are meant for the monitors to see but have no reflection in reality. Instead, what's on their pay stub are the hours that they actually worked, and they're being paid correctly for the hours that they work. Women who are pregnant are treated with respect and are given their legal paid maternity leave, which in Bangladesh is they're supposed to be paid eight weeks before the expected birth and then eight weeks after. It's a matter of life and death for the woman and her infant and family because when you're paid, at this point, the lowest wage is 33 cents an hour and the highest for a garment sewing operator is about 44 cents an hour. When you're paid that little, you can't save money to take that kind of time off. These are big differences in the lives of workers, and it really is international visibility and pressure that can drive these changes. So when we talk about how media can be useful, it's increasing visibility not just to the problems, but also to those places and those situations where responsive policies have actually been put in place and are working. Yes, absolutely. All right, then. We've been speaking with Barbara Briggs of the Institute for Global Labor and Human Rights. You can find their work on the web at globallaborrights.org. Thank you very much, Barbara Briggs, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.